That's awesome. We're so thankful for Dylan, <clears throat> what she means to our community, and um, the example uh, that she gives to all of us. Well, hey, good morning. My name is Norton, and um, today uh, we're going to talk about a magic box. Uh, we're going to talk about why you can never trust oxen to do an important job, and uh, the scandal that had everyone in the city whispering. So today we're going to uh, look at two stories from the life of David. We're in this series about David, um, and they're really fascinating stories. Uh, they're strange stories, and I need to warn you right up front, um, one of them is a bit of a disturbing story. It's one of those Old Testament stories uh, that can actually drive people away from God, or away from the Bible, or away from the church, uh, or Christianity. Um, but I actually think that the worst thing we can do in, with stories like this is just skip them, or ignore them, or pick and choose. Like, we're going to read the stories that are nice, but the stories that are hard or difficult, we're going to skip those. Um, and so we want to be a place where we can bring all of ourselves and engage all of God. And, and if you miss either of those two things, you miss something really important. So this morning, let's bring all of ourselves and uh, read these two stories, and I'll try to unpack them for you and really try to engage all of who God is. Now, let me bring you up to speed real quick on the story of David. We've been in this series, if you haven't been with us, um, it's about 1,000 B.C., and at this point, David is hiding out from King Saul. Saul is the king over Israel. Saul is trying to kill David because he thinks David is trying to steal the throne from him. And so he chases David into the wilderness, and David spends years of his life running from Saul in the wilderness. But then one day, David gets word that the armies of Israel went into battle against the Philistines, and Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle. And the Bible says that David mourns over that. And then, for the next few years, a struggle ensues uh, between those who pledge their loyalty to David to be the next king of Israel and those who pledge their loyalty still to the family of Saul. Saul has one more remaining son. His name is Ish-bosheth. And he says that he has a right to the throne. And so there's this civil war that breaks out, and there's violence, um, and it gets really ugly. And uh, David eventually wins over the hearts of the people. Um, Ish-bosheth is killed, and David becomes king over all of Israel. Now, because of the bloodshed that happens and the division and everything that's going on in the nation, David realizes when he first becomes king, he needs to do something to unify the nation, uh, specifically to unify the nation under his leadership. So he actually does two really important things. Um, the first is he establishes Jerusalem as the capital of the nation. This is actually the time when Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel. There's an old mountain there or a hill there. It's called Mount Zion. And so he takes this hill and this, this mountain is connected. Uh, there's some legends connecting it with Abraham, one of their four uh, fathers or ancestors of the faith. And so he takes this city named Jerusalem and he makes it the capital. In fact, he even names it after himself. He calls it the city of David. It becomes known as the city of David because that's how he's establishing his rule over the people. But then the second thing that David does, and this is really important, is he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David, to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was basically a very ornate box that would have looked something like this replica. Uh, it was created to hold uh, Israel's laws and a few other sacred things. But most importantly, the ark represented God's presence. 
The, the Israelites knew God was actually present everywhere, but this box, this sacred object was a symbol of his presence with them. It was like where God was, and it was a way for them to engage with who God was in a really deep and meaningful way. And, and, and sacred objects actually have the power to do that in our lives. We still do this in church, right? Water is a sacred object. Baptism is this sacred ritual that means something really important to our faith. When we take communion, the bread and the wine, they they mean something. The the, the sign of the cross or the symbol of the cross is a a very important and sacred object. But we also know there's nothing magical about these objects. There's not magic water up there. There's nothing magical about the cross. It's it's not as if if you have one of these objects that that they have magical powers and if you wear a cross around your neck or or you dip your fingers in the holy water or, or you rub some beads in the right way, it's not as if God will just magically bless you or protect you. And that's the tension with sacred objects, right? That's the tension we actually see with the ark. Uh, Many years before David became king, um, one time the Israelites were in battle with the Philistines, and uh, they were losing the battle, and they got the idea, well, you know what, we just need to have, make sure God is on our side in the battle, so some soldiers take the ark, and they carry it into battle, so that God will be on our side, and will definitely win the battle, and guess what, they lost the battle, and the Philistines actually captured the ark. And it's almost like God is saying, hey, I'm not going to be your lucky charm, right? I'm not going to be this this magical rabbit's foot that if you just carry this object into battle, you'll suddenly win. And then when the Philistines captured the ark, they actually took it and they put it in one of their temples and they began to worship it with their gods. And then suddenly a bunch of Philistines started getting sick. And then a whole bunch of weird things started happening. And so the Philistines were like, hey, we don't want the box anymore because <laughs> uh, something's weird or strange about this box. And so God actually uses these sacred objects to help people worship him, to help people know him, to help people experience him. And the ark plays that role in Israel's history. But if people start worshiping the objects themselves, if people start using the objects as a, as a rabbit's foot or a, or a magic token, it's almost like God doesn't want to have anything to do with that. Now, uh, the Philistines decide they don't want the box anymore, so they put it on a cart, and they just send it into an Israelite village. And uh, it ends up at this man's house, and his name is Abinadab. And uh, he lives about seven miles from Jerusalem. His sons begin to take care of the ark. And remember, this is way before David. His house becomes this local shrine, and the ark stays there in his house for decades. And then when David becomes king, David has the idea when he's making Jerusalem his capital, let's go get the ark and bring it into Jerusalem so that it will symbolize God's presence and power and strength being upon us and upon our city and upon my rule and upon this nation. That's where we pick up the story. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, here's what it says. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah and Judah and uh, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned 
between the cherubim, that's the sculptures of those two angels, on the ark. So uh, David gathers his army, and they all travel to this little village to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. There's another version of the story told in the book of First Chronicles, where David, um, we're, we're told that David actually invites people from all over Israel to come and join the festivities, join this great procession of bringing the ark into Jerusalem. The story continues. Uh, they set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. These are all kinds of musical instruments. Everyone's excited. There's this massive parade that's kicking off, right? There's going to be this huge celebration, and they're singing, and there's music. And when it's time to, to start the procession, uh, the two sons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahio, apparently they're put in charge of, of overseeing this whole operation, of overseeing the process, or, or maybe they take charge themselves. We don't know, of overseeing the process of transporting the ark. They're managing the operation, And just in case we missed it, we're actually told two times they put the ark on a new cart. Now, there are all kinds of rules in the laws of Israel about how to handle this ark, this box. Because remember, the box represents God himself. So you don't take this box lightly. You treat it seriously. And so there's all sorts of specific rules about how to transport it. Uh, For example, um, only priests from a certain clan of the tribe of Levi were supposed to transport the ark. And then when they transported it, no one was supposed to touch it. No one was allowed to. In fact, that's why there's rings on the side, and they would slide these poles into the rings, and then they would pick up the poles and carry the poles on their shoulders so that no one was actually touching the box. And in fact, there were even curtains that they were supposed to hang around the box so that people wouldn't even see the box with their own eyes or have the possibility of reaching out and touching it with their own hands. And when I share those rules with you, uh, they might seem a bit picky to us, but we're not that different. We have rules and rituals too. Think about a wedding ceremony whenever anyone gets married. There's certain music that is traditionally played. There's a certain way that the bride always comes in and and people stand at a certain time and somebody's standing here and people are sitting there and there's very specific rules about how it should all happen and and there's words that are exchanged and certain vows are exchanged. And and then at some point in the ceremony, there's this really weird thing that happens. They take this, this round piece of metal, there's actually two round pieces of metal, and they put them on each other's hands and, and, they, and it has to always go on this finger right here. It can't go on any of that. It goes on this finger. See, we're really picky too when it comes to specific rules and rituals. Or think about an American flag. There's very specific ways that you're supposed to hang or fly an American flag. It's, it's supposed to be hung at a, a particular height in relationship to other flags. It's supposed to be hung a different way if there's been a national tragedy. A flag is never supposed to touch the ground. 
It's always folded in a very specific and proper manner. It's always honored in a specific way. And so we might hear about these rules regarding this box and the rules for how it should be transported. And we might say, well, it's kind of silly. It's just a box, right? And that would be like going to someone who just got married and saying, it's kind of silly. It's just like a piece of metal. Why are you even wearing that thing? Or that would be like going to a, a military honor guard at a funeral and saying, it's just a flag. It's just a piece of fabric. Like, why is this such a big deal? It's a big deal. Because objects like these and the rules and the rituals that go with them, they always point to something that's so much greater. They're symbolizing or standing for something that is so deeply meaningful. They're communicating a deeper reality, and that's what the ark was, right? It was communicating the reality of God's own presence. And so the rules and the rituals that went with this ark, they weren't arbitrary, They were communicating how one should approach God. And so we read, Uzzah and Ohio are doing it themselves, which they weren't supposed to. These other priests were supposed to do it. And the way they're transporting it is all wrong. And then they put it on a new cart. They're not supposed to put it on a cart. We read all that. And if you were an ancient Jewish person reading this, you would go, "Uh uh-oh, something bad is about to happen. The story continues. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Continues. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, if this happens to be the first time you're hearing uh, this story, you're thinking like, what? The ark is falling off the cart and he just reaches out to make sure it doesn't hit the ground and, and God strikes him dead? That is the weirdest, most disturbing story. It doesn't make any sense. Now, is it possible that, that Uzzah actually had a heart attack at that moment and they didn't know that and they didn't really understand the medical cause and... I guess that's possible, but at the very least, we have to acknowledge that's not how they interpreted the story. The narrator of the story clearly believes that God struck Uzzah down because God was angry for what Uzzah had done. Uzzah hadn't followed the rules. He hadn't transported the ark the way he was supposed to. And then he touched it when he wasn't supposed to. And and on the surface, this whole story can really easily reinforce all the bad images we have of God. That God is just vengeful, and he's wrathful, and he has these weird and arbitrary rules, and he's sitting up there waiting to see if anyone steps out of line, and if they do, he's going to zap them immediately. And this is the reason a lot of us are like, I don't want to read the Bible anymore. We, We also know that the Bible seems to say that God is gracious, and he's loving, and he's patient with people, right? 
And and he cares more about the heart than following the rules. And, And then we get to Jesus, and we all believe Jesus is the best understanding of how we should, what we should think about God. And we can't imagine Jesus ever doing anything like this. And so what do we, what do we do with a story like this? Why is God so harsh with Uzzah? Well, I don't, I don't know if I have any great answers. Well, let me give you a few thoughts. Once you know the background, you know that Uzzah didn't really handle the box the way he was supposed to. He's careless. It's like he's not really taking it seriously. He doesn't approach or respect God the way that he's supposed to. And maybe the issue is not just Uzzah. Maybe it's so much bigger than that. Maybe the whole nation at this time was irreverent or careless or they didn't approach God the way they were supposed to. And God decided on this day with all the people gathered that he was going to make an example of Uzzah, like a warning to the rest of the nation. Or maybe um, the story we have is just incomplete, right? A lot of stories are like that in the Bible. Maybe we don't have all the details. Maybe God had warned Uzzah over and over about how he was mishandling the ark. Maybe Uzzah's dad had said to him, like, hey, don't use a cart with oxen. You have to transport it with the poles. And Uzzah had been like, dad, relax. This new technology is amazing. It's so much easier. It's so much more efficient. Why would you carry this heavy ark with poles when you can just put it on a brand new cart? The Philistines have pioneered it. It's awesome. We should use it. Maybe something like that is going on. Or maybe... Uzzah's carelessness and his irreverence had been going on for a long time. And it was deep down in his heart. Maybe you couldn't see it very well from the outside, but deep down for Uzzah, God was no longer a sacred, transcendent God to approach with the utmost of holiness and humility. But God was just a box. He was just a a rabbit's foot to manage, to control, to use whenever it was convenient. And so on that day, God decides to teach Uzzah, to teach David, to teach the nation. He's not a God that will be controlled or managed or used like a magical token, a rabbit's foot. And that seems to be the lesson that David learns because David gets really angry at first. It says he's really angry because his whole parade has been ruined and his day has been ruined. But then it's like David's afraid when he realizes the gravity of the situation. And so he just leaves the ark at this guy named Obed-Edom's house. And if I'm Obed-Edom, I'm like, I don't think I want the ark after what I saw just happened. But apparently Obed-Edom has reverence for it. And he takes care of it. And God blesses him and his family. And three months later, David decides, okay, let's give it another try. Let's bring the ark into Jerusalem. And this time, guys, let's try to follow all of the rules. Here's what it says. So David went to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. 
So this time it's clear they are carrying the ark. It's probably the Levitical priests who are carrying it. It seems like they're following all the rules. David's even going the extra mile. He's offering sacrifices along the way. And then it says this, wearing a linen ephod, just like a garment, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, that's his wife, by the way, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. The most respected and revered and dignified and proper and honored man in the entire nation, the king himself, when they bring the ark through the gates and into the city of Jerusalem, he goes crazy. And he's dancing around like a silly fool in front of everyone. It's hard to picture what this would have looked like. So so I want to show you guys a video. Um, Yesterday, I I filmed myself doing a demonstration of, no, I didn't, that didn't happen. Um, (laughs) I want to show you a clip. You got excited for a second there, I can tell. Uh, I want to show you a clip from an old movie. This is from 1985. It's called King David and Richard Gere plays David. And in the movie, they, they, they include this scene in the movie. Now, there's some poetry at the beginning. Sort of disregard that. There's some poetry that's being read that comes from a psalm about when Saul and Jonathan um, are killed. But it portrays David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And I want you just to take a look and see what it might have looked like. So it's kind of an old movie, but um, I think it actually captures the scene quite well. Here, here's how the story ends. It says this, when David returned home, this is the same day, to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And then David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. David is is dancing with this wild abandon, he's, he's going crazy and, and it looks like a fool and everyone's whispering. All the servant girls are whispering, I can't believe he's doing that. And, and Saul would have never done anything like that. And, and Michal is horrified, right? And so she's, she has this biting sarcasm like, uh, hi, my, how the king has distinguished himself today. And, and David is like, um, I wasn't dancing for you. And I wasn't dancing for anyone else. I wasn't even dancing for me. I was dancing for God. I was worshiping God. I was celebrating God. And in these stories, I think we see that David recognizes something about God that Michal didn't see. I think David recognizes something about God that that Uzzah didn't understand. 
It's almost like Michal had literally put God in this box. And Uzzah had put God in this box. A box to manage or control or use however they wanted. And David has this very different understanding of who God is and what he's like. Do you know what God is really like? You know what we learn in this story? I think it's best captured by C.S. Lewis. He wrote a famous book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Listen to a conversation that takes place when the children in that book first hear about Aslan, the ruler of Narnia. Is, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then at the end of the book, when Aslan leaves unexpectedly, the children are sad. Here's what Mr. Beaver says. One day you'll see him, and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. He's wild, you know. He's not like a tame lion. He's not a safe lion, but he's good. He's not a tame lion. He's wild. And it's almost like Uzzah had put God in this box. And he was managing God. He was using God in whatever way it suited him and the way the Israelites sometimes did. And Michal, she had God in her own box. For her, God was this very dignified, proper, very tame, very safe. But he's not tame. And he's not safe if there's anything we learn from this story. He's good. He's better than any of us could ever imagine but he's not a tame lion. And so the question that I want to wrap up with today is simply this. Where have you tamed God? Where have you put God in a box? Maybe a little bit like Michal or Uzzah did. Um, I think some of us tame God in our beliefs about him. We have these nice, neat categories about what's right and what's wrong and who's in and who's out and And we forget that when Jesus showed up, the most religious people in that time had nice and neat categories about all of those things, and Jesus shattered all of their categories about what God was really like. Uh, Some of us tame God in our worship, right? We go crazy at our our favorite football team when the Broncos finally score, right? Or we go crazy when our favorite soccer team scores, Or we get crazy when we're at Red Rocks watching our favorite band. When it comes to worshiping God, most of us, myself included, are like Michal, reserved, dignified, very buttoned up. Uh, Some of us tame God in our desire for comfort 
It's almost as if we think God's main concern is making sure that we're happy and we're healthy and we're rich and successful in life. And we use God like a magic token. Maybe we go to church every once in a while, we pray a prayer, we do a sign, we do something, and we assume that that just gets God on our side and he'll help us win the battles that we want to fight. And sometimes I think God lets us just keep treating him that way. It's almost like God is saying, like, hey, if you want to put me in that box and take me into that battle, go for it. But that's not me. You're not worshiping me anymore. You're worshiping a made-up God that you made up in your own image. And then there's David. David understood God can't be tamed. God can't be managed He's not going to be controlled, and we dare not use him for our own agenda because he is an untamable lion. And there is nothing more exciting, there's nothing more thrilling, sometimes scary, than choosing to serve and worship and celebrate and follow this untamable lion in our lives. The question is, will we do it? Let me pray for us. And then we'll wrap up. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for these uh, challenging stories. And uh, I pray that they would push us out of our comfort zone. They would help us to take those parts of our lives where we're comfortable, where it's easy, where we might be using you for our own purposes where we might have put you into categories that you don't belong and, and help us be willing to let go of those things. I thank you for uh, Dylan's example to us of somebody who just trusts you with her life and wants to follow you wherever you'll lead her. I pray that you would help all of us to deepen that trust and that faith in you today. We pray this in your name. Amen.